Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of the Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And joining me is my co-host, Amy. Amy, say hello. Hi. <laughs> so this episode is going to be near and dear to Amy's heart. Uh, joining us on the program is Samuel Moyne. Sam is a professor of law and history at Yale University. We'll introduce him more thoroughly during the interview, but he's going to be talking to us about his latest book. It's called Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World. It just came out this year from Belknap, which is a Harvard University imprint. Amy, what do you think about law? You are a law student yourself. This is your wheelhouse. Why is it that socialists uh, should care about law? And uh, what is it? What, what, what's your take on all of this? Let's chop it up before the interview. <laughs> Why is it that socialists should care about law? Uh, that is <laughs> the world's broadest question. Um, I like to ask very specific questions to make it yeah, easy I got on that. people. You, you definitely tailored that one <laughs> quite effectively. Um, but I guess um, something that obviously you and I have discussed, and certainly I've discussed it a little bit with one of your former guests, that being Ms. Heidi Matthews. Um, and we tend to shout find, out to Heidi Matthews. Hi. Um, we tend to find that, like, of all the political and social institutions that we have, um, leftists tend to be pretty good at cutting through the ideology associated with political and economic establishments and recognizing the ultimate, like, contingency and contestability of those structures. And yet it seems with law that leftists are a lot less comfortable or a lot less fluent in the language of critique. Um, and I think certainly you sort of hedged at that a little bit in terms of your state theory series, but I think it is a significant problem even even still, um, precisely because what happens when you don't employ the methods of critique that you would in other arenas, you're implicitly... Um, sort of operating from the perceived, like the received wisdom that you've inadvertently kind of absorbed. And obviously, you know, we see the reasons why that's problematic when it comes to other structures. So sort of the default mode in terms of what most people would tend to assume unthinkingly, sort of reflexively, would be one of, you know, comfortable liberal-ish neoliberalism. Um yeah. And yet with the law, we sort of fail to recognize that a lot of the assumptions um, and like normative claims that the law makes in addition to its ability to actually deliver on those goals that it seeks to achieve, because the like legal frameworks are a bit of a black box for people outside of the academy. Um, yeah, totally, totally. I think a lot of those sort of liberal assumptions within law tend to very much still be tacitly endorsed by people on the on the significant left so perhaps one arena where this is most conspicuous at least as i see it is the idea of rights um as both a legal technology 
but also as a as a discursive framework. So, to a really large extent, um, human rights as such have crowded out what are actually a much broader set of contestable claims about what we would want society to look like, what it is that we believe a state owes individuals and collectivities. Um, And I think when we do that, what unfortunately happens is that the limitations of rights as a legal technology are only engaged with on relatively narrow technocratic terms. So one way this tends to play out with rights is, especially with universal human rights, um, a pretty comfortable liberal critique tends to run along the lines of, well, rights are lovely, but the enforcement mechanisms are lacking. Or if we, and that's just a really, like a really technocratic, like we don't have the mechanisms to make sure this uncontested good, that being human rights, is implemented effectively, right? And so that's actually a super narrow claim. And then, you know, the most expansive that we ever really get from people is something like, well, I'm not so sure if, you know, rights are sufficiently universal. Maybe they're like a Western-centric notion that, you know, isn't normatively able to be applied to everyone. Um, But both of those are just, and, and that's about, as expansive a critique as you'll get. And I just think both of them fundamentally miss the point that rights are an individual, a fundamentally individualized discourse. Um, and not just a discourse, but as a, as a framework internationally, there are a lot of inbuilt limitations to it as a concept. And as a framework for achieving justice. Um, and I think what we really need to start thinking about is the normative individualism of a human rights framework. And basically what I would suggest is its inability to deliver collective distributional rights. So at least the way I see it, and, and I believe the way that Samuel Wayne sees it, is that Human rights really only make sense as one partner in a politics of fair distribution. There is only so much of the lift of the lifting that a rights discourse or a rights framework can actually do when what we're talking about are questions of distribution. Right, right. I mean, we're really prefiguring a lot of things that we're going to be talking about in the interview. That was a really great introduction, I think, for people to think through some of the pitfalls. Uh, and some of the critiques, some of the wrong-headed critiques of law and society, not getting to the root of the problem. I mean, just as you were sort of outlining that really great um, sort of uh, foray through <laughs> the kind of like legal studies, uh, you know, um, whatever the hell it is, whatever, critical, whatever it is that you people criti- do. Critical legal. Critical, critical legal, legal studies. studies. Um, you know, I'm thinking about like just all of these resonances between the topics and the and the difficulties that you bring up from the past shows that I've had. And so that like, it's just clear to me that all of these things run through uh, all of these key topics that are debated on the left right now. Of course, uh, my, my episode with Nevada, uh, Nevada talking about like this uh, post-coloniality and this kind of quote unquote post-colonial subject. Can the subaltern speak, right? Is this kind of like founded on this premise that, 
you know, that, well, human rights uh, are a form of universalizing discourse. It just isn't relevant uh, to the quote unquote East. It's a very Western, Western centric, Eurocentric kind of thing or whatever. And it's like, that's not really getting to the root of the inadequacies of human rights, right? Like I think it's, it's a way of bypassing the real fundamental yeah. inadequacies and constraints and sort yeah. of grafting on this kind of like otherness, which this is, is in yeah. itself very like orientalist uh, to presume yeah, that totally. people in the quote unquote totally. East have different needs and can't, uh, can't ascribe to sort of universalizing projects or whatever else. Yeah. And, um, and, and there's so many just, other topics there. Yeah. Yeah. If I could just interject there, I, I think that's critically important what you just raised because, and, and I'll use a bit of a shitload example as I'm, as I want to do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so one way of illustrating this is if we look at, say, some of these reactionary assholes like Sam Harris and, you know, admittedly, potentially even someone like Samantha Power, they will weaponize the um, so-called rights or lack thereof um, in terms of status rights. They will weaponize the lack of status rights that women have in other areas and then they will employ that lack of status rights that women have in certain countries in the service of their own ideological or political goals. Um, And in fact, if you speak, so for example, if women in the West are agitating for certain forms of social change, what will often happen with conservative or reactionary forces in the West who are resistant to those... um, to those activists, they will often cite the far worse status of women in other nations as a rhetorical device to attempt to neuter um, progressive activism from women here. So we can see this really clearly when people will, you know, some of the people who are the least inclined to want to enable the migration of refugees from, say, Syria will be completely closed on questions like that, but then five minutes later be citing the fact that gays are thrown off buildings in the Middle East and that is why either we need to intervene or that is why women should be content here at home in the West because Mm -hmm. things are far, far worse over there. And what you actually tend to find when you speak with particularly radical, radical is the wrong word because it's been sullied by Catherine McKinnon, but when you speak with left-wing feminists in, um, in you know, nations in the global south and the Middle East, and they will, at least in my experience, what they would tend to say is, no, you, like you women in the West agitating for change, that's, that's good too. Like the idea that we should necessarily... That as if there was some fo- like binary between the two and, and mm-hmm. one necessarily detracts from the other is complete fucking nonsense. And yet something like that post-colonial claim that says, you know, maybe these aren't universalizable is more often than not weaponized to prevent progress rather than to actually do anything um, effective or, you know, offer alternatives. It is more often than not used as a cudgel rather than an actual critique aimed at changing anything. Right. I mean, there's so much more to say about that. Obviously, uh, folks who listened to the interview last week with Richard T. Ford, law professor at Stanford University, 
Uh, we talked about the limitations of anti-discrimination, um, you know, in, in, in terms of addressing the actual existing racism. Uh, well, civil, civil rights, sort of like, like the rights, that was a rights discourse too, right? Right, right. Yeah. So we're moving from civil rights, the limitations therein to human rights. And the, and the, the common thread here is that this is, this is a kind of, there's a, there's an underlying dynamic of law and society that we need to tease out. And I want to just get to the interview, but, uh, cause we could talk about this forever and we'll do that for our patrons on the B side. For sure. Uh, we'll talk your, your ears off if you really want us to. Head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe for $5 more per month and you'll get access to Amy and I yapping uh, endlessly. But uh, in any case, prefiguring one of the discussions that we're going to begin the interview with, I think, is uh, is an interview. Uh, rather, sorry, it's an article by Lizak Kolakowski, um, who is a, a legal theorist who is a very complicated figure, as we'll, we'll lay out during the interview but uh, in, in the early 1970s, he wrote a really influential piece, and I think an important piece in many ways, called Marxism and Human Rights. And it really, and he, he concludes there that human rights discourse is a tool, it's a weapon of the bourgeoisie uh, that emerged uh, during the uh, birth of capitalism, which naturalizes their own priorities and then extends them into kind of a universal discourse onto uh, the working classes in order to help achieve their subjugation. And uh, Kolakowski and a lot of Marxists during that time, therefore, uh, sort of uh, uh, concluded that uh, the the discourse of of human rights just purely uh, produces this kind of, uh, you know, this harsh individualism. And therefore, Marxists and socialists should reject this notion of human rights and individual civil liberties uh, in favor of this kind of withering away of the state, which would then produce a kind of like natural human unity. And I don't know, I guess we would all sort of um, sing Kumbaya together and tend the fields uh, in like the perfect Maoist, um, you know, uh, utopia. <laughs> like, and I mean, Whatever. I could talk about that forever. But I think the real challenge for Marxists is like, I don't think anybody believes that anymore. I mean, I certainly don't, which is why I call myself a Marxian instead of a Marxist. I, I simply do not buy the fact that once the quote unquote state withers away, that we will all then exist in perfect uh, harmony uh, once, you know, private property is expropriated and uh, sort of collectivized uh, in a democratic fashion. Um, I think we're, we, we both agree with Samuel Moyne. And so far as saying, like, we need to think about how something like human rights can be extended into the realm of economic egalitarianism uh, because it needs to augment uh, more thoroughgoing economic socialist transformations. Does that sound about right to you? Yes, I'm a complete pragmatist on this one. And as much as I think Marx was obviously brilliant and incredibly instructive in terms of providing a uh, way of thinking about things. Um, I see his intervention as providing a particular set of tools rather than a set of dogma or received wisdom that we should absolutely adopt. And to my mind, like I fundamentally don't care what Marx wrote in on the Jew Jewish question. And I mean that with with all like with as much disregard as it sounds like. Um, because I think that and here I'm speaking for one of the greatest thinkers of anyone's, you know, of all time. But I'm quite happy to say that if that motherfucker was alive today, the idea that we'd be sitting around looking at the contemporary nature of human rights, both discourse and 
international uh, mechanisms and be utilising this two-bit paper that he wrote 200 years ago when (laughs) that particular term meant something altogether different, he would be, you know, he'd be writing one of his famous acerbic fucking 28-page letters as to what morons we are for doing that. And so my take he is definitely, I don't, He definitely laid down a diss track on all of us for uh, being so absolutely. dogmatic about a simple document. Like, well, like fundamentally, yeah. if, if he had written that letter and instead of rights he called them hot potatoes, it would, have, it would not be something that we paid attention to. It is the sheer fact that like the same word is used that people were trying to warp out far more than what was actually contained there and, and try to um, like build it up into a much more relevant piece than I believe that it is in relation to what human rights are today. So, right. so yeah, I, think, I, just, I, mean, I don't care. I think we, we could spend a lot of time prefiguring the interview, but I just wanted to get that piece. I wanted you to sort of lay out your uh, sort of critique of law and society and the way to, to sort of think about this as a broad continuum running through all of the themes of the show. And then I wanted to sort of prefigure that discussion because this is, I think, the unique contribution that we can make with Samuel Moyne. Uh, Moyne has is do, has done a number of podcasts and interviews. I mean, he's a, he's a big name out there. And so he, this is certainly not the first time he's appeared on air talking about his book. And so I, I thought that this would be a sort of more unique contribution he could make given that this is an explicitly Marxian and socialist-oriented uh, podcast. So I wanted to sort of prefigure that for folks. But uh, yeah, without further ado, we're going to get to the full interview here. Um, again, if you're not a member of the Dead Pundit Society, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe for $5 a month. Amy and I will be doing a second show this week, as we will from here on out, and you'll get access to that as a patron. And if you're not, I don't know, you'll miss out, I guess. So uh, don't miss out, folks. And uh, yeah, and with that, we'll bring you the interview. Human rights. What are human rights? Well, human rights are the values which keep society fair, just and equal. They protect children, the elderly, people in care, victims of domestic violence, people with mental health problems, religious groups, teachers, soldiers, and yes, prisoners. They protect all of us. They protect you. Our human rights are protected by law. That means we can do something if our rights are attacked. But not everyone loves human rights. Some want to water them down, even scrap them. Our rights are under threat, so it's time to get educated. Joining us on the line is Samuel Moyne. Sam is a professor of law and history at Yale University, where he teaches and writes about human rights and all sorts of uh, international uh, political disputes. Sam, thanks for joining us on Dead Point of Society. Thanks for having me. So your recent book is called Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World, but you have an entire career behind you at this point, uh, writing about the intricacies of the human rights regime what they mean and what some of their pitfalls and contradictions might be and what that means for progressive and left-wing sort of strategies and politics in the world. Tell us a little bit about your first book and how you sort of made your entryway into a critical posture uh, with respect to human rights. That first book was called The Last Utopia, and it was really about how uh, the human rights regime is a sort of, uh, you know, uh, the final refuge of sort of a discursive arena that is developed after the quote-unquote death of God, uh, the fall of religion, uh, the kind of decline and pitfalls revealed in the natural rights regime, and so on and so forth. Tell us how you got involved in this kind of a critical view of human rights early in your career. So it it really is a book that that has its origins in my youth when I was a student and and then in law school, I got very interested in the 1990s in 
human rights because they were presented to us as what you might call the morality of the end of history. And it seemed as if to their promoters after mm -hmm. 1989, like if we just worked on spreading them, especially in the face of the atrocities that we were witnessing, the kind of, you might say, fly in the ointment of that era, the end of history. So Bosnia and Rwanda and, and Kosovo, we, we, we would be, you know, kind of completing the agenda of the enlightenment. And so I believe all of that and even worked in the white house here in the United States on the Kosovo bombing. But mm -hmm. as I began experiencing, you know, the history's continuation, I began rethinking not just, you know, whether rights are good or bad, but where they may have come from and how they became so important. And so I wrote a book kind of contesting the idea that was so popular in the nineties that they came from the secular enlightenment and they were, they were retrieved after the Holocaust to put us on guard against, you know, atrocious outcomes by despots uh, mm -hmm. worldwide and especially in the post-colonial world. And I concluded that the right story was that actually very few people had been engaged with what we now think of as human rights politics until the 1970s. And, and really, as you say, because they were depressed about the possibility of other forms of secular emancipation, notably nationalism and socialism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in your work, you talk quite a bit. You frame the discussion about uh, trying to reveal the sort of revisionist narrative that has emerged that you hinted at. Uh, but I want to unpack that a little bit more explicitly for the audience. This International Declaration of Human Rights um, is sort of held up and championed these days as the sort of origin story of the human rights regime and this discourse that uh, this kind of ce celebratory discourse that emerges, as you say, at the end of history, which, you know, is, is now sort of falling apart due to in your latest book, Not Enough, sort of the thesis there. Spoiler alert is that uh, it's economic inequality that's foiling right. uh, this this project and this agenda. And uh, we'll, we'll get there, of course, uh, in due time. But but prior to that, let's tell me a little bit about this kind of revisionist narrative. Um, it's interesting that, you know, you write that even a character like John Rawls writing about rights the way that, that he did. Yeah. He probably you, you, you speculate anyway that he probably he likely never even heard of the International Declaration of Human Rights right. in, in the 70s. Uh, which is a really bizarre thing that, that, you know, when I read that line, I was kind of shocked. I thought, how could he have not have heard this thing? This, this, is, the, this is the origin story. And, and uh, so right. sort of frame that for us a little bit. So, um, you know, first we have to define our terms. I mean, one way we could define human rights is as just the, the kind of abstract commitment to the notion that individuals have rights against the state and against the society in which they're living. And no one doubts that that's a very old idea. But mm -hmm. when I did my research, I discovered that actually very few people, Rawls was just representative, heard of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights of 1948 until the mid to late 1970s. And if you just do a kind of language analysis, which Google allows us to do nowadays. Um, it's quite startling that the, the phrase human rights was almost non-existent in usage until 1977, when Amnesty International won the Nobel Peace Prize 
and the U.S. President Jimmy Carter announced the first really state human rights foreign policy in world history. So I began thinking, how do we account for the fact that there had been this universal declaration, but no one heard about it or seemed to care about it for several decades? So I came up with a revisionist account. So the first stage in that account really begins with the premise that there have been multiple politics of human rights in the last couple of centuries. No one could deny that the American Revolution was based in 1776 on natural rights or the French Revolution in 1789 had its own earlier declaration of the rights of man and citizen. But those were rights enunciations that were linked to the creation of new citizenship for the Americans in the aftermath of empire and mm-hmm. the French on hope they hoped on the ruins of monarchical tyranny. So they were very different movements. They were citizens movements. They weren't about empathizing with atrocity abroad. And above all, they were, if necessary, violent movements. They were also exclusionary movements because they were movements for some citizens, um, not women, not blacks, not colonial subjects, you know, since, you know, the first rights-based citizens were also the people founding modern empire. So when you think about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which you mentioned in 1948, it's probably in the spirit of those old campaigns. It's not revolutionary anymore. And one of the most interesting things about the Universal Declaration of 1948 is it forgets about the right to revolution, which was always in the early modern period and in the American and French revolutions, very central to what human rights were going to be about justifying revolution and if necessary, violent revolution. But the 1948 declaration was really about saying, you know, citizens should have rights. And at this point, there were new rights that citizens were supposed to get, like the right to health care, the right to work, the right to maybe form trade unions and strikes, although that those last rights were still too controversial to make it into the United Nations list. I just think that's all very different from what happened in the 70s when the Universal Declaration was retrieved, because suddenly human rights were about suffering abroad, nonviolent politics, and about identifying with, you know, foreign suffering and mobilizing to end it especially if it was in the post-colonial world. Oh, yeah. And, right, and right. so the question became, how did, why did the Universal Declaration wait to get the meaning we associate with it since the 1970s? Yeah, so I noticed in your framing just there you spoke of citizens as being necessarily rights holders in the way that the Universal Declaration was framed. Just wondering if you could speak to the notion of kind of non-citizens or, or aliens outside of particular sovereign nations also sort of being afforded, if not rights per se, certainly consideration, at least in the, in the declaration in terms of, of refugees at that time? Mm-hmm. It's a great question. Um, so I would say, you know, in, in the original revolutionary rights politics, there weren't just the silent exclusions of you know, women first and foremost in the 
American and French revolutions. But there were also active um, expulsions. Um, so, you know, the Americans found a new country, but tens of thousands of people are forced to leave because they'd been on the wrong side of the debate leading up to the American Revolution. And mm -hmm. if there are natural rights, they don't protect those who are made strangers to the citizenship project. Actually, we have not changed very much um, since yes. then because there's still <laughs> yeah. no human right to be part of the country you want to join. Um, <laughs> and that was Hannah Arendt's point when she she criticized the Universal Declaration Project by saying, what matters is not rights, but the right to have rights, the right to be exactly. a citizen, which is nowhere protected. Now, it's true that the Universal Declaration says that everyone has a right to a nationality. But of course, no one thinks there's a duty on any state, any particular state to provide citizenship to refugees. Now, it should be said that there is a treaty called the Refugee Convention, um, mm -hmm. which says that if a refugee makes it to the border of a state, mm -hmm. the state can't turn that person away if that refugee says that they have a reason to, to gain asylum. It's a pretty narrow set of reasons. It's totally up to the state whether they take the reason seriously and of course, most important, it's really hard for people to reach the borders of states and demand hospitality. So sadly, we don't really protect the rights of strangers, even to this day. The central reason why I asked that, and the reason I'm so keenly aware of that boundary question is, I'm not sure how familiar you are with Australia's mm -hmm. uh, asylum seeker Absolutely, uh, the Nauru regime. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's nothing short of an atrocity. For listeners who aren't aware, basically what the Australian government does is it uh, there's a significant pipeline of asylum seekers that will attempt to make the journey from Indonesia to the northernmost parts of Australia mm -hmm. to seek asylum once they hit Australian territorial waters. And what the Australian government has explicitly done is deploy naval vessels to police not even the boundary of australia but the, but basically uh, the so-called demarcation between australian waters and they will drag those vessels back into international waters which therefore neuters the ability of asylum seekers to seek asylum under that particular claim and anyone who is in fact able to make it to australia and make that claim is then locked up offshore so i i, I mean the reason i lay all that out is just to highlight beyond any of the more critical questions about what rights can do in terms of economics and distributive justice. I just, I think it's well worth noting like their inability to even exist for certain peoples. Absolutely. It, it, you know, and it's a global story. So, you know, Australia is, is copying the United States, which whose Supreme Court allowed in a famous decision some 30 years ago, the government to sail out beyond its, its territorial waters and turn back political asylees so it didn't have to hear their claims. The that's European what, yeah, Court of Human Rights, too. absolutely. The European Court of Human Rights has been more stringent and said, you can't do that. If you encounter a political asylee in the Mediterranean and you're outside the territorial waters, you still have to obey the refugee convention. So 
European governments responded by basically brokering deals with foreign states to interdict refugees at the point of origin. And, you know, if you keep, you know, refugees from reaching you, either at your border, or for Europeans on the water itself, you have no responsibility towards them. And so you're right that this is a terrible thing. But, you know, to come back to, you know, how this might relate to this, this broad question about human rights, we, we could ask, well, or don't we have to think about how these polities used rights to include at least somebody. So there are all kinds of exclusions throughout history, but rights have been a political language and a set of movements that have promoted inclusion for some. Mm. And that presumably could be the basis for a more generous and universal inclusion, but it would have to start with those people whom the citizenship projects make strangers, even in providing entitlements to citizens. Yeah, I guess the only thing that I tend to find like the, the most jarring is the fact that, especially over the past 40 or 50 years, human rights have been so consistently framed as apolitical that mm-hmm. like the discourse around them, um, much like a lot of sort of neoliberal ideological mental models if you will like it just really takes the politics out of it and i think that's quite a uh yeah it's it's troubling because it allows it to paper over what's actually going on yeah absolutely um you know what one line of of criticism of human rights might be to salvage them from the people who have successfully taken themselves to be the chief representatives of these principles we could say there's no intelligible politics of human rights that doesn't focus to begin with on universal inclusion, that doesn't counter neoliberalism for those who at least have a state. But the fact is that there have been these human rights movements that have arisen since the 70s. And because of events then, they tend to treat themselves as apolitical above the fray pretending that we all already share a commitment to human rights and then trying to get bad actors like states to hew a bit more closely to what the law says. The trouble is that the law protects very little of a more radical understanding of human rights, let alone a more radical understanding of what our moral relationships ought to be like. And so when you when you present your movement as apolitical and just trying to enforce the human rights we already agree about, it turns out you're enforcing very little. It's a lot compared to nothing, but it's minimal compared to what we might think the obligations uh, we all have as humans to one another involve. Right. Let's do Let's. This has been great. Let's do a, a little bit of bottom feeding, if you will, before moving on to the more explicit arguments of your latest book, and then uh, I know Amy, uh, you and Amy would like to chop it, or Amy anyway, would like to chop it up about Steven Pinker before we uh, wrap things up with you a little bit. You have you have a piece uh, about Stephen Pinker in the New Republic uh, some months ago. But prior to that, let's do some bottom feeding. Um, I posted this article up on Twitter for folks to kind of do a little bit of homework prior to the episode. It's, it's, it's a classic piece. It's, it's, it, it, 
it sort of outlines some of the limitations, I would say limitations, of a kind of Marxian Marxist approach uh, to human rights. Uh, it's by Lisa Kolakowski. I believe it's from 1972. It's called Marxism and Human Rights. There are a lot of contested claims there in, in the article. And Sam, I certainly don't want to hold you accountable for them if you've read it or it's been a while. Sure. But the way he opens is very interesting. He sort of defines the kind of contradiction of human rights. And he asks, he says, when we say that we accept human rights, what are we actually saying? And he argues that we're saying that we accept human rights as valid. That's what you say. You say I believe in human rights. I believe that human rights are valid. But there's a there's a difficulty therein, which is that to say that the validity of human rights must be irrelevant to what most people actually believe to be true. They have to be valid, even though no positive law includes them explicitly or implicitly. But the converse of that is to say that the validity of human rights is not a sheer act of commitment uh, that, that sort of uh, requires a certain kind of performance. It's to say that we believe that everybody ought to be given these rights rather than it being the case that everybody has the rights. Um, that was somewhat confusing, but you see the sort of flip side there. So it's on the, on the one hand, it's, it's, it's uh, the validity of human rights uh, is independent of whether or not they're actually codified in the law. And they're actually independent as to whether or not even believes that they should be codified into the law. They have this really, tr- there's this, this odd theological or transcendentalist uh, sort of uh, justificatory quality about them. And so I really want to get to this. I think there are going to be a lot of students of human rights and scholars of human rights. And I really want to sort of define our terms here and, and to point to some of the constitutive uh, contradictions uh, therein, I think, of this sort of narrative as to why uh, a sort of human rights project cannot be so easily grafted onto existing more materialist and historical uh, historicist views of, of uh, you know, sure. economic justice and, and that sort of thing. So spell, spell out the nature of human rights uh, for us before we move forward, perhaps. Sure. So I, I'll say I'm very happy to say that there, there's a universe of moral obligations that, you know, someone, a, a first a political, you know, movement, you know, drawing on its own insight has to forward. And maybe a philosopher ultimately would be required to come and, and, and figure out, you know, how, how do we justify these, these moral entitlements? And some of those are rights in the sense that, I'm willing to say that as a matter of morality, individuals do have some entitlements against one another and any political entities that they may create, amongst which I'd include, you know, states and and corporations, and that there should be some politics to defend those rights. But those aren't the only moral obligations. We may have lots of duties to one another that aren't just kind of connected to the the rights that individuals have. Maybe the community has some entitlements. Maybe nature has some entitlements. Those aren't human rights, but they may require us as human beings to shoulder some duties to get it at a, a good society or, or even more broadly, a, a good you know world. So that's my take. But the trouble is that that's not the mainstream view within Marxism, largely because Karl Marx wrote as a youth a very important denunciation of human rights called On the Jewish Question. He uh, discusses in that text the French Revolutionary Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen of 1789 and says, rights are part of bourgeois so-called political emancipation. The bourgeoisie invented the idea of rights to overthrow feudalism and put itself in charge. 
The trouble is that the workers will have to aim higher for something called human emancipation. And in doing so, they'll have to leave behind the way the bourgeoisie framed its claims, including in terms of rights. And so since then, Marxists have struggled with where Marxism should stand on rights. Some people faithful to Marx's original arguments. Others have said no. Interpreted more broadly, there can be a socialistic theory of human rights. Now, Kolakowski, whom you mentioned, this Polish dissident and then emigre, was on an ideological voyage in the year 71-2 when he wrote that piece. He had been the, the most famous proponent of so-called Marxist humanism in the 60s and notably in 1968, but he became very conservative and became a Cold War hero once he got to Oxford after fleeing uh, Poland. And his take was that there was just a split between Marxism and human rights. If you endorsed the one, you had to reject the other and vice versa. Now, as I say, that's not the only take. What I want to suggest in my work is that some of these rights that we can justify and some philosopher would ultimately have to justify intersect with distribution. There aren't just the old rights of free speech and freedom from torture and so forth that are critical and have to be defended. But there are also rights to work and rights to, you know, basic provision from the community and the state, you know, health care, water, food. And yet, even these rights aren't enough because we also think, whether we're Marxists or not, that we ought to live in at least a relatively equal societies or on a relatively fair planet, you know, without the haves and have nots, not just within each state, but as a global affair. And human rights at, in our time really in all times, have had very little or nothing to say about equality. And so the point of my new book is to argue that we need a politics of rights, but we also need another politics, which is a politics of, of equality, and human rights may not get us there. So this would be a, an apt time, I think, to move to the, uh, you know, the sort of thesis of your recent book, Not Enough. Um, mm-hmm. You've hinted at it several times now, so let's sort of spell it out uh, more uh, specifically here. This is the distinction you sort of raise between uh, sufficiency discourse versus a sort of an equality uh, narrative. Spell that out for the audience, and uh, you sort of talked around it, and, and you sort of hinted the fact that uh, there is a different, there is a sort of different sort of trajectory here that that is possible with with the narrative uh, of, of human rights. And then tell us what kind of transformations would have to happen within the sort of human rights regime, the sort of uh, national and international you know, institutions that have evolved to, to address these issues. Great. So in the last utopia, I really was not thinking much about distribution or, or economics. You know, I was, as I said, I was oriented to liberal internationalism from the 1990s and showing that the story it had told us of the origins of its central principles was not true. If there were rights in the Enlightenment, they were part of this kind of project of citizenship emancipation with all of its exclusion. Not many people cared that much about the Holocaust in the 1940s. And if there were people who wanted to create international human rights protection in the 1940s, no one listened. And that's why it was that John Rawls and so many others just never heard about 
human rights until the 1970s. And then there were these very specific circumstances in the 70s when Westerners turned on decolonization and started to indict the failings of the post-colonial state. And they also gave up on their own socialism and embraced human rights as a cause that was less likely to descend into terror. But even when I talked about socialism, somehow I I didn't think enough about kind of the distributional ideals of socialism and the broader economics of, of our world. And I was struck by some criticism that I was given by actually a brilliant Marxist um, international lawyer named Susan Marks, who who said that it may be true that human rights came to us in the 1970s, but that's because that's when neoliberalism came. Um, and these two things are connected. Uh, so it was really in thinking through, you know, how, how do the history of human rights relate to the history of lot, larger distributional ideals that I ended up writing this new book? And the basic story is as follows. You know, the politics of citizenship were always exclusionary from the revolutions to the time of the welfare state in the 1940s. But there was a big update. For those who were included, the welfare state was really about providing social citizenship. And so instead of seeing the Universal Declaration of the 40s as a kind of failed attempt to internationalize rights politics, I now see it as a template for the welfare state. And what really mattered in the 40s was that people, whether they were talking about rights or knew about the Universal Declaration or not, they were demanding social citizenship. Again, you had to be included uh, in citizenship. And it was best if you were part of the so-called white male working class, because that's the group that welfare states favored. And yet, for those people, there was an unprecedented amount of social protection. And it came in two forms, really. One your right was in the form of sufficient provision, saving people from destitution. But there was also constraint on inequality. And that's why these states uniquely in modern times are those across the Atlantic that created a modicum of economic equality for citizens. And that's what we've lost. Actually, we've done much better in our neoliberal period with sufficient provision, not perfect by any means, but it's just true that extreme poverty around the world is less largely because of Chinese marketization. And if you want neoliberalism, where we're really suffering is that in most states, even as the poor sometimes do better, the rich do much, much better. And so the trouble is that human rights have been pursuing a selective morality even when they've finally gotten around to focusing on economic and social rights transnationally, they've turned a blind eye to the explosion of inequality globally. Um, and I fault them in this regard. It's not that human rights are bad, whether traditional political and civil rights or the you know newer kinds of economic and social rights, but that they need to be connected to an explicitly egalitarian agenda. Now, that's tough. You asked at the end of your question, what, what, what transformations would be required? And clearly the answer is a lot. We can't retrieve the welfare state because it had such you know, terrible shortcomings, especially when you take its exclusions into account, women, its racial exclusions, and so forth. Right. It's but it, disciplinary it, it apparatus. Right. Absolutely. It's bureaucratic yeah. character. It's oppressive you know, quality for people in the 60s who revolted against precisely the welfare state. 
But that generation of the 60s that's gone on to make our world has sadly made it a neoliberal world. And so we'd need to figure out how do we get the equality that the welfare state did sponsor with fewer exclusions and much more global, a much more global outlook. Because of course, the welfare states were national projects, whereas we rightly demand uh, not just local justice, but global justice. Yeah. So I just in light of what we were discussing earlier in terms of Marxist conceptions of rights and sort of the bifurcated nature in terms of some Marxists endorsing the concept and others not so much. I just was hoping you could speak to kind of some of the flawed conceptions on on the left. Um, I'm thinking in particular of, say, David Harvey and Mm -hmm. one of our favorite um, whipping boys, if you will, being Naomi Klein. Yes. yeah, yeah, I sort of see her as like the the Malcolm Gladwell of the left. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> too strong. <laughs> Naomi's maybe. Good, she's maybe, she's a nice she's a good like, presence. She's a good presence. Well, but, I'm sure uh, yeah, she seems lovely, you. but like this isn't about <laughs> personal like personality. So I guess sort of what I, I was you. thinking about earlier is the idea that like um, particularly Naomi is very good at framing issues with an incredibly. Um, Um, Like, she packs a good punch in terms of the narrative appeal of the way she often will conceptualize things. And I'm thinking of an earlier episode that Adam did in terms of the environment, where she she similarly isn't quite as rigorous as she could be in the way she conceptualizes certain things. And so I guess something that we're pretty keen on here at, at Dead Pundits is making sure that we actually accurately conceive of the the forces responsible for the status quo in yes. order that we can effectively like agitate for change because if our concepts right. aren't aren't right like the trajectory is is necessarily limited mm-hmm. in terms of what we can do to to remedy things so yeah i guess i just sort of wanted to get your read on why such a huge number of sort of scholars tend to distort the past to suit the present as i've heard you right. sort of say right right in other right. other places so so it's it's um you know, it's a fascinating question because I think it speaks to, you know, matters of progressive strategy. So, right. yes. you know, at, yeah. a, at a certain point, it seems as if we should downplay our disagreements on the left in order to be more powerful together. And I wrote my book, actually, both of my books that we've been talking about to sort of say, you know, whatever we think about the ultimate cause of neoliberal economics, whether it's, you know, a a terrible group of scholars led by Friedrich Hayek, or it's the forces of capital, we can at least agree that it's, it's a bad thing. And we should think about how, how we can forge a common position in order to resist it. And so in my new book, instead of worrying too much about how Marxists and non-Marxists might disagree, I sort of present this crisis of inequality as one place where we can all agree neoliberalism has taken us down the wrong path. And Mm -hmm. if that's correct, then we should also agree that whatever the, let's say, potential of human rights, hypothetically, the actual movements we've seen 
have missed the boat when it comes to inequality. They focused on some things at the expense of others. Now, that, if successful, conceals a, a lot of room for potential disagreement. So for one thing, there are some very hardcore Marxists who would say that it's not that human rights aren't enough, it's that they're a flawed political vocabulary, just as Karl Marx originally said. I don't want to go that far. Yeah, Yeah, I don't want to go that far because I don't see what could be wrong with defending an individual's right to free speech as long as it's not selectively done. And I also don't want to get into a theory of capital that is supposedly required to do anything else because there's just no one who's provided such a theory plausibly to date that would account for the victory of neoliberalism and since the 70s and explain exactly how human rights are part of, let's call it the superstructure in relation to the base of capitalism. Now, when we come to the two figures you mentioned, it should be noted that David Harvey and his brief history of neoliberalism actually takes my side. He's someone who's convinced that as a, as a, a card carrying Marxist that we need to identify the the economic motor of history. But he says, look, human rights can serve our project. And so he's willing to play with others who are, are, are insistent that we should give rights their, their importance without overstating that importance. Naomi Klein is a more difficult case because in her book, The Shock Doctrine, I think she does something very powerful, but it has a few couple of limitations. One is that she blames human rights politics for neoliberalism. She says that in Chile in 1973, which is when the first laboratory of neoliberalism was set up, human rights activists should have been focusing on neoliberalism. And because they only focused on torture, they distracted the world from what the Chicago boys were doing. Now that seems to me ridiculous, uh, no because pressure. for one, uh, because uh, for one thing, it was up to the left to indict neoliberalism, and if there was a ragtag group of human rights activists merely decrying torture, there was no reason that couldn't coexist exist with a broader left wing strategy to condemn neoliberalism. It's just either it didn't happen or it didn't succeed. More broadly. Naomi Klein relies on human rights reporting to denounce the so-called shock doctrine. And along the way, kind of, I think, misses the point that neoliberalism has not only been, or even mainly been, um, significant in the kinds of horrible, you know, physical depredation she emphasizes, but, you know, has saved more people from poverty at least extreme poverty in China than any entity to date and troublingly seems to fit in our world in which the dominant powers are willing to make the poor less poor if it doesn't interfere with their main project of making us more unequal. And so it seems to me that when we take seriously that reality, we need to spend a lot less time focusing on state horror which is the main topic of the shock doctrine, and much more in focusing on class inequality, which is actually like 
one thing we can agree about Marxist or non-Marxist about like what's happening in our time. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that you're arguing that Naomi Klein falls prey to this sort of revisionist narrative herself and uses that as a kind of just so story uh, to account for the rise of neoliberalism. Whereas it seems that what, you know, the real underlying, I think really politically useful uh, piece here for, for the activists out there, you know, not, not just the, the, the dusty scholars, uh, you know, mm -hmm. like us is, is to say that uh, it, it's the case that at the precise point where this kind of uh, robust forms of social provisioning become uh, under challenge for various reasons. And I've talked about this extensively on my show over the past year and some months. I talk about the collapse of the welfare state, the collapse of social democracy, uh, the challenge and the contradictions and pitfalls of, of, of sort of trying to guide a capitalist state in a, in a global uh, capitalist right. economy towards, right. uh, you know, projects of social provisioning. And it's sort of undermined under a variety of pressures in the late 60s and early 70s. You talk about, you know, stagflation and outsourcing, globalization and deindustrialization. And so, you know, it just, it just can't be missed at that precise moment when, when all of these uh, crises of capitalism and crises of the social welfare state and social democracy are happening, that you see this shift in yes. the uh, human rights regime where we're not talking about FDR's second bill of rights any longer. Of course, I mean, that, that didn't get a lot of traction. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that didn't get much traction in the 40s either, precisely no, because no. of uh, economic downturns uh, that happened uh, following World War II and other types of uh, other types of economic crises as such. So we don't want to overplay. You know, we don't want to produce this other kind of just-so story where we say, well, you know, FDR's second Bill of Rights used to have all of this power in society, and now it doesn't. Because it – right? So I, yeah, I want to be clear. I don't want to go too far in that direction. Absolutely. Uh, but, but that seems to be the most politically useful aspect of this. To say – to focus too much on what happened to uh, human rights in the 70s is to miss the underlying kind of uh, causative forces there, which is to say that – Rather than attacking human rights in this sort of discourse, we need to start fighting for economic, uh, you know, equality, um, and in certain forms of robust social egalitarianism, which can then spawn this kind of perhaps a rebirth of a more robust form of, of human yep. rights. Does that sound? Yep. Does that sound right to you? That sounds basically the 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 line of thinking you know that should prevail. I mean, I have a whole chapter on the Second Bill of Rights in the new book, and I just note that I mean, you know, it was really for those who. Uh, championed it a kind of a synonym for the planned welfare state Americans weren't going to get. And the trouble is that human rights haven't pursued such kind of governmental authority for a fair society since then. And because America was so excluded from the kind of transatlantic story of the welfare state, it ended up planting a time bomb for the world because, of course, America was one of the epicenters of neoliberalism and through its direct relation to the world or through the long arm of these international financial institutions like the World Bank, it ended up, you know, having a big effect in the rise of austerity for existing welfare states. But I think the only place I would differ is that I would say that we shouldn't forget that not only were the historic welfare states exclusionary in gender and race terms, but they really were so oriented to the middle class that they didn't do so well with the poor. And, and we just always need to rem remember that poverty and inequality are not necessarily the same problem. Our time, it's true that some of the protections of the welfare state are getting eroded, especially in, in Europe under austerity. 
but many places never had those protections. Other places are getting them. It's just there. It's not connected to a project to make sure that we end up with a relatively equal society. So the neoliberals tell us that they care about the poor, not that they don't care. It's just that that to 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 float their boats, they need to rise the tide. And enough people have listened that that's what's happened around the world. And so the question is. Partly do we need to rethink human rights, but partly do we need to put human rights in the context of a broader egalitarian politics for each state and then for the world as a whole. Right. So let's, that was a pretty good summary, I think, of Not Enough. I really encourage folks to pick, pick this book up. It's out from uh, Belk Knappers, an imprint of Harvard University Press. And, uh, it's a great book and it covers all of these themes far more, uh, you know, co- coherent and complex, completely than we can do so in, in just a, an hour or so. But I want to save just the last five, uh, or 10 minutes or so for you and Amy to chop it up about Steven Pinker. I know that's a very short period of time, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, I'm sure Amy and I can continue this conversation uh, in, in further uh, episodes for, for, the, for the audience. Um, uh, Amy, what did you have there? We only, only have a short period of time, unfortunately, but uh, maybe we can sort of lay down a diss track on Steven Pinker in the last uh, few minutes. Yeah. So I think um, the first thing I sort of wanted to ask you about was explicitly in just in relation to exactly what you were just saying about um, a politics of distributive justice and perhaps we need to necessarily not conflate not conflate inequality versus amelioration of poverty like it's it is absolutely possible to be you know as you said china has been the biggest like we've seen the biggest reduction in poverty in the past 20 years just just in china alone um so it's you know and in that period the inequality across the world has, has been just on the exponential increase so I think it is really important to kind of um, make sure we separate the two. And I think Pinker is particularly good at um, alighting that distinction and sort of confusing the way that we think about these things. Um, So, for instance, I think particularly centre-right sort of free market types will frequently cite that reduction in poverty as though it is somehow indicative of us being on the right track or right. doing the right thing. And and I think I was just hoping you could speak to sort of that sufficiency idea mm-hmm. um, and the fact that, like, inequality is actually what we need to be talking about. Right. Well, I think we need to talk about both things. And the trouble is that, that Pinker selectively embraces one in order to distract us from the other. And this is, of course, totally inadequate. So um, in his new book, Enlightenment Now, let's not even get into how plausible Pinker's claim on the so-called Enlightenment is. Yeah, I, um, yeah, I have but the distinct he, displeasure. Yeah. Uh, agree totally. So um, yeah. he, he argues that, um, like, by, like so many, that, that poverty is getting remediated. Now, we should pause to note that What's getting remediated in China is so-called extreme poverty as measured by the World Bank, which is a little more than a dollar per day. Um, And so it's being remedied in the sense that all of those millions now get a dollar and change a day rather than less. Whether that's cause for celebration is another matter. I mean, it's cause for optimism, but 
not if it's coming in relation to the explosion of inequality. So China is a great example since actually it's gotten more unequal more quickly than any other state on the face of the planet on during the same time period. Pinker, like so many other kind of relatively libertarian and anti-leftist thinkers, Jordan Peterson and others, really fastens on poverty remediation as as if it were the only thing that matters. But of course, that's false. Yep. And there's next to no argument in his new book, and certainly not from others of this ilk, why we sh- can't be concerned about both poverty and inequality. And there's n- certainly no moral argument to the effect that it's adequate to live in societies with the kind of class hierarchy that are emerging. Now, to his credit, mm-hmm. in in this recent interview he's done uh, with Jordan Peterson on Peterson's podcast, you know, Pinker has a discounting relationship with some of these people who follow him and are in his orbit. He he comes off, he wants to come off as the rational, insane, you know, member of this crew. And so he's actually begun acknowledging that the kinds of inequality we're seeing are toxic to the extent that they allow the rich to buy the political process. And so that's actually promising. The trouble is that I worry that it's a way for him to signal that he's, you know, a kind of broker between the more toxic versions of this libertarianism that are in his Twitter feed and and his own views. Yeah, I, I'm... I'm afraid I'm, I don't share your optimism um, for two key reasons. The first being that even if you take his argument on its own terms, he's completely neglected arguments that would actually look at the underlying criteria. So, for example, uh, Jason Hickel at the LSC has done a whole bunch of work suggesting that if you lift that arbitrary um, poverty per day measure from $2 to $5, even the brute numbers are going up, not down. Yes. Well, there's no, sorry, there's no doubt that everyone agrees that there are more people in absolute poverty today than in the past, but that's because there are so many more people. So the debate is about whether there's a proportional improvement. No, well, on Pinker's terms, there is a proportional improvement at that lower per day rate. But if you increase that to $5 per day, the not only the sheer numbers, but also proportionally to the world population, it is going up. Yes. So, yes. so Th- even that, on its own important. terms, the fact right. that he hasn't explicated the boundaries of what he considers, like that can shift dramatically just based on the presuppositions, which I he agree. refuses so to engage So all of with. these yeah. are truths, and and I think we need to be reasonable to take take them all on board. So yeah. there's no reason not to celebrate the Chinese success, but we we should then with the same breath condemn the inequality that's gone along with it and especially as you say the the fact that poverty uh, you know defined a bit more generously is increasing uh, and that means we're very far from social justice and we can't just offer you know libertarianism as a panacea Right, right. Yeah, I think that's spot on. Uh, Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Sam, you've been so generous to give us an hour of your time today to talk about these things. Uh, You're flying out to Europe tomorrow for a month to give a number of talks out there. And so uh, thanks again for coming on the show. Would have really liked to delve into some of these topics more thoroughly, but that would have taken many more hours to do. For listeners out there, if you're not aware of it, Sam wrote a full-length article for the, the New Republic 
that's going to be linked in the show notes. That was back in March, and that was uh, fully covering his critique of Steven Pinker and that crew. So, Sam, thanks again for giving us your time. We really enjoyed it, and uh, we hope to have you back on the Dead Pundit Society here in the coming months. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. No, that was brilliant. Yeah, thank you. And that concludes our interview with Samuel Moyne. Thanks again to Sam. He's a very busy guy, uh, very generous with his time. As I said, he's heading off to Europe for a uh, whirlwind tour of Europe over the next month. He's going to be doing a lot of speaking engagements there. His message uh, about uh, the critique of human rights and the human rights regime is well received over there in Europe. Um, far better so, I think he mentioned off air, than in the United States. So uh, if you're in Europe, I don't know, catch Sam out there. Go to his, check out his website. Maybe you can uh, see him in person and talk about some of these things. But um, yeah, Amy, what'd you think? That, that, that must have been a real treat for you. I know he was uh, very short on time and we had so many different topics to cover. We probably could have made that like three distinct interviews if we wanted to. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, it was think? brilliant. I mean, I could have happily sat and picked his brain for the entirety of possibly his flight to Europe. But um. <laughs> Yeah, no, very much enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we're going to be continuing this theme. As I mentioned, this is kind of uh, an ongoing sub-theme that we've got here. I'd love to hear, Amy, you chop it up about critical legal studies. Uh, I'd like to bring our friend of the show, Heidi Matthews, back on at some point to talk about the nature of law and society because it really does, as we mentioned in the intro, run through every single topic that we're talking about, whether it's civil rights, whether it's human rights, whether it's sort of the individual versus the collective um, whether it's the way in which neoliberalism has constrained our imagination when it comes to social provisioning and uh, you know collective ventures, it's it's all there. It's underlying everything, and I think you you rightly mentioned the point that socialists don't take this seriously enough. So, well, yeah, I mean, I think most socialists, when it comes to law, are eating from Zizek's trash can of ideology all the time. <laughs> Oh, no, we're not going to do that. It's not going to happen. I, I got a Zizek, but you got to put 12 beers in me. And, I uh, feel like when you try to do an imitation <laughs> I'm a little, of I'm anything, feeling a little under the weather today. No, I, just, I don't have it in me. I'm sorry. No, but uh, you never that was, that was a tease. Like you, you start out right, and then you just like just start <laughs> mocking yourself before you can even really get into it. I, that's well, that's where the 12 beers come in because you know it lowers inhibitions and I just sort of go with it like for better, for worse. 12 you know, beers. Better, for worse. 12 beers, folks. You hear that Adam. now. Go ahead to donate to the Patreon. Buy Adam 12 beers. 12 beers. I need yeah. to get my stomach pumped three times over. So, yeah, anyway, uh, 12 beers aside. Amy, any parting words for the people? We've talked about a lot of things. This is kind of your wheelhouse, international law and human rights and all the rest of it. Uh, anything to leave? Anything to leave these fine folks with? I do. I do. And I guess... Being a total Chomsky fangirl, um, I've been keenly aware for decades the um, the partial nature of U.S. Um, advocating human rights on an international stage, um, and and I think anyone on the left is at least somewhat aware of the non-neutral nature of America's interventionism or advocacy on the world stage. But um, yeah. You don't uh, say. Late, yeah. Um, but in late May, there was a 
internal memo from the State Department that was leaked. It was um, uh, not classified, but it was deemed as sensitive but unclassified. It was a note for the Secretary of State, basically an internal memo from the State Department that makes (laughs) pretty fucking plain um, that disparity of approach is is, um, an overt part of the U.S. approach on the world stage. So I just want to read the unvarnished elements of it to leave people with something to think about in that regard. So it. it reads, In the wake of Iraq and Afghanistan, slow economic recovery, the rise of China, and the failed Arab Spring, there is understandably less optimism today that the world can be easily democratized or reshaped simply by expressing American liberal values or by badgering American allies. At least that is the position President Trump ran and won on. If if properly implemented, this is very much in the realist tradition of US diplomacy, a mainstream and historically grounded tradition, just as American as any other. In the case of US allies, such as Egypt, Saudi Arabia and the Philippines. Solid human rights protectors over there. Definitely. The administration is fully justified in emphasizing good relations for a variety of important reasons, including counterterrorism and in honestly facing up to the difficult trade-offs with regard to human rights. It's not as though human rights practices will be improved if anti-American radicals take power in those countries. Moreover, this would be a severe blow to our vital interests. We saw what a disaster Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood turned out to be in power. After eight years of Obama, the US is right to bolster US allies rather than badger or abandon them. One useful guideline for a realistic and successful foreign policy is that allies should be treated differently and better than adversaries. Otherwise, we end up with more adversaries and fewer allies. The classic dilemma of balancing ideals and interests is with regard to America's allies. In relation to our competitors, there is far less of a dilemma. We do not look to bolster America's allies overseas, we look to pressure, compete with, and outmaneuver them. For this reason, we should consider human rights an important issue in regard to US relations with China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran. And this is not only because of moral concern for practices inside those countries, it is also because pressing those regimes on human rights is one way to impose costs, apply counter-pressure, and regain the initiative from them strategically. Jesus Christ. And like all the, that, that's like the playbook for what you've seen in, um, in the Middle East and North African region over the past year or so with, you know, um, MBS in, in Saudi Arabia and CC in Egypt is like sort of like portraying themselves as like, you know, carrying out this counter-terrorism, pro-human rights regime. The U.S. is the world's largest terrorist state. It is the (laughs) biggest offender when it comes to terrorism. 
most extreme Sorry. purveyor of violence across the world. I mean, it's just, it's astonishing. But you can see how, like, you can see this is really important, I think, for us because you can see how human rights is now being sort of recoded in, in this sort of ideological uh, veil, valence. It's far too it's easily there. weaponized. Yeah, right, right. I think I think maybe that, I mean, that's, that's why we need to be very careful with it. Moin, I think Sam, you know, in our interview really produces a very careful kind of historicization of it um, so as that we don't have to sort of throw out the baby with the bathwater, but we can also reject this really just bullshit, sappy, uh, pro-American, pro, uh, you know, Saudi royal family, uh, pro-CC throwing, you know, journalists in prison to rot kind of rhetoric. Well, I mean, that's the thing. Like, it's just, it's making very, very plain what people have suspected for decades, which is that human rights as a foreign policy apparatus for the US state is one that is utilized politically and selectively where it happens to line up with American geopolitical and economic interests. And in the situations where it doesn't, it is brushed aside. It is that simple and that plain. Yeah, and I think what makes that so dangerous is that it's very easy for despots, these kind of and right-wing populists to arise across the world and to point to the hypocrisy in, entailed in this kind of, you know, highly ideological form of, of human rights perpetrated in the name of U.S. imperialism. It's very easy for those despots to come along and say, see what happens when you accept human rights in your country. Uh, we're going to reject that regime and we're going to sort of uh, we're going to show that authoritarianism is the way to go. Um, and it's kind of like it really forces exactly. you into this kind of false choice between, you know, this kind of state sanctioned uh, despotism, which which just doesn't respect, you know, the notion of civil rights and, and a real uh, robust and I think egalitarian and socialist and humanist direction. Um, but then on the other hand, right, those who are perpetrate who those who are pushing, uh, you know, the, the narrative of human rights are are, are sort of um, implicated in in this kind of U.S. imperial venture in a really ugly sort of way. And I think Sam's work is trying to to forge a path out of that sort of yeah like that two sided trap. Yeah, and I think the other critically important thing, and I think it's more evident in international law, but funnily enough, it applies to all forms of law, is that. The reason we obey the law and give it any mind is not because it physically constrains us and it's primarily not because we're afraid of getting caught if we violate it. It's primarily because in our own minds it has legitimacy and that is basically like it is a fiction in each of our brains. It is a collective fiction that we've all bought into. But the moment we... um no longer buy in, it loses any sense of authority and it loses any sense of legitimacy. And if you have the world's biggest power making plain the partial nature of its interest in human rights, the entire project loses legitimacy across the board. Right, right. Yeah, it's very true. Like in a really fundamental way. Like if when if if people look at it as a farce which is what documents like this would suggest then the buy-in and the authority of that legal fiction is like it no longer has that it no longer has legitimacy as a project so that's why i think it's critically important that as as sam's work does it it 
engages us in the fact that human rights um, discourses and frameworks are have had significant successes, but as a project, they're necessarily limited. And if we want to achieve a sense of authority and legitimacy in international um, social demands, we need to expand beyond the status quo of human rights as just status rights and start looking at rights associated with economic justice and distributive justice um, in order to expand the scope of our moral imagination in terms of the international order. Right, yeah. Right on, right on. So we're going to sign off here. I'm feeling under the weather, and um, I don't know if people can hear it in my voice or not. I'm trying to maintain the pep in my step. But damn, I've been sick lately. I've been sick like (laughs) three or four times. Uh, I did say I said pep in my step. I said, said I, here, let me tell you, fashion, let me, let me say, let me tell you what happens. Let me tell you what happens. Let me say, let me tell you what happens when I get on the microphone, Amy. Let me tell you what happens when I get on the microphone. All of a sudden I start using these words. Like when I'm on, when I'm on the mic, I, I start using these words and phrases that I've never used in my entire life. I don't know what it is. Oh, yeah, so I, I, I must sound like. To the audience, to you fine listeners out there, I must sound like the cheesiest, most corniest bastard in the world. And I mean, I'm pretty cheesy and I'm pretty corny. Like there's, there's no denying that, but it's just something about like, as soon as I hit the mic, like I'm like, oh, fiddlesticks. And I'm like, fuck, I've never said that in my entire life. Why did I just say that just now? Yeah, and <laughs> so I, I enjoy leaning into your awkwardness and making it worse yes, for please you. Please do. Like please when you do. say awkward things, God. I really enjoy just leaving a pregnant pause hanging, like you just like squirming. <laughs> your own like weird bullshit so yeah uh, all that. right so before i embarrass myself anymore we're gonna sign off uh, for the people um as i said uh the show later this week is gonna be for patrons only don't miss it go to patreon.com slash dead pundits we are in the midst of a june fun drive so please by all means uh, support the show if you've been on the outside looking in if you're a former patron and you've left or whatever Come back to the fold. We got a lot of really exciting patron-only content that's going to be coming your way uh, on a weekly basis. So, uh, yeah, don't miss that. Join join the society and uh, hear Amy and I chop it up and, and uh, give you the spiciest hot takes over on the patron side. So until that show, uh, folks, it's been fun. I'm going to go take some vitamin C and go to bed. Amy, sign off. Dead pundits, out. <laughs> yes. Oh, this you crazy mother...